everybody, welcome to another Baseball America Prospects podcast. I'm Kyle Glazer, joined on the phone today by longtime Milwaukee Journal Sentinel Brewers beat writer Tom Hodricourt to discuss the Brewers farm system. Tom, thank you so much for joining us. Glad to do it, Kyle. It's, uh, it's always fun to discuss prospects. I, uh, I, I've been doing the, the top 30 for Baseball America for many, many years, and it's educational for me as well as fun because it keeps me abreast of what's going on in the top 32 and uh you know it's amazing how much the top just the top 10 has changed for the brewers since last year we're going to get into that but they you know they've traded some guys they've advanced some guys so we have some new names to talk about absolutely you know you mentioned the brewers and and the turnover they've had obviously a fantastic season last year getting within one game of the world series they used some of those prospects to help them get there. Freddie Peralta, Brandon Woodruff, Corbin Burns, you know, particularly on that pitching side. They used a lot of other top prospects to go get key players. Obviously, the big one being Lewis Brinson, Monte Harrison, Ison Diaz, Jordan Yamamoto for Christian Yelich, who won the MVP award. In a sense, the Brewers kind of did what you're supposed to do with prospects. Get a few of them up to help you, use a few others to get the big trade, and kind of executed it perfectly Tom, when you just kind of look at the state of the Brewers as a whole, the big league team, the farm system, just the entire big picture, how do you see where this team is? Yeah. Well, let, let's uh, not bury the lead. The Brewers were the Baseball America Organization of the Year. <laughs> yes, they were. So, uh, so we at Baseball America um, deemed them to have done the most across their entire organization. You know, I was having some discussions uh, with people after the announcement. You know, well, how are the Boston Red Sox not the organization of the year? And I said, well, it's not winning this team of the year or World Series champion of the year. It's, you know, the organization of the year encompasses all aspects of an organization, uh, farm system, scouting, pro scouting, amateur scouting, player development, just everything. And so the Brewers were very excited to be honored in that way. And, you know, they've come a long way in the three years uh, plus since David Stearns and company took over. And I don't think anybody saw the rebuild working as quickly as it did. They, they were within a game uh, of making it to the World Series. And just look at that David and Goliath matchup, too, the Brewers against the Dodgers. Uh, you know, no one's going to compare the resources of those two teams as being close. So, you know, and, and as you mentioned, they've traded some prospects, but I give them credit for doing that. I don't know if you feel the same way, but oh, absolutely, you know, they did absolutely the right thing. Yeah, I mean, prospects could be used two different ways: to further your own organization or used as currency to buy big league talent. They they right rightly saw after 2017, Kyle, that that they were moving along faster than expected. They missed the wild card by one game. In 2017, they uh, were eliminated on the next to last day of the season in St. Louis. So they missed by one game of the wild card in their second year of a complete rebuild. So they, they sat down and said, you know what? We're going to take our cue from our own players. They look like they're ready to move forward faster than people thought. So last January 25th, we're coming up on the anniversary of one of the biggest days in acquisitions in Brewers history. Yep. Within a couple of hours of each other, they traded for Christian Yelich from Miami and signed Lorenzo Cain, yep. a free agent from Kansas City, who actually started his career in Milwaukee. Yep. And 
you know, David Stearns is quick to point out that they never tried to cross the finish line simultaneously with those two moves. It was not meant as this tremendous one-two punch. Two completely different negotiations just happened to conclude at the same time. So the uh, uh, Mark Atanasio tells a funny story after the Yelich uh, trade was um, consummated, and uh, and David Stearns told Mark Atanasio, the owner, that uh, they were also really close with Lorenzo Cain. Atanasio, in true owner ownership form, says, "Well, do we really need both?" <laughs> and um, David Stearns says, "Yes." Yes, we do. And so uh, it just totally transformed the team. It made them such a different team. I mean, can, can a prospect for Major League Talent Trade work any better than the guy winning the MVP award in his first year? Probably not. And that's, you know, you mentioned the prospects being used for currency. Every single team that's ever been successful has had guys they've kept and developed and brought up, but also been able to use those prospects for key additions at the deadline or in the offseason, whether it's the outfielder they need, the starting pitcher they need. It really is that balance, and part of the reason we awarded the Brewers the Organization of the Year Award is they struck that balance really nicely. There are homegrown guys on this team from across different eras, from Ryan Braun to Orlando Arcia to all the aforementioned arms, but they also properly identified, here's the guys we can trade and what's a worthwhile return for them. And it really worked out beautifully, and, and that's part of, of the reason that the Brewers, A, were successful as they were, B, won our award, and C, I would argue, are in good position to remain contenders you know, over the next few years, uh, both with what they've got uh, at the big league level, what they've still got in their system, and the player development apparatus they've built. There's a lot to trust. It is, and I think they will be good for a few years now. It's hard to have long windows in small markets, but I think they are in position to do it. Having said that, the NL Central just seems to get tougher and tougher and tougher. You know, the Cardinals were not are not happy that they've been out of the playoffs the last few years, so they've gone out and got um, Goldschmidt, um, Paul Goldschmidt, and uh, Andrew Miller, um, and so they're they're you know made tremendous uh, strides. We all know how good the Cubs are. The Pirates. You know, they, they were above 500 last year, too, and gave Brewers um, big struggles every time they played them. And then look what the Reds have done. They've just changed everything. Mander, coaches, a lot of the players. So the division just gets tougher and tougher. And a lot of people don't understand that a, that a team's fate is often tied with, to what's going on in the rest of the division, too. If those teams are stronger, it's hard to uh, win as many games, even if your team is good, because you play those teams 19 times. And, yep. You know, you play a 162-game season, and then at the end of the season you're tied for first place like the Brewers were with the Cubs. And they go out and play a game 163 at Wrigley and win it. And then it just changes their whole fate. They uh, Now they're, they're the number one seed in the league because those teams tied for the best record. They win that extra game. The Cubs get eliminated the next night in the wild card by Colorado. The Brewers then sweep Colorado, take – and take the Dodgers to a seven-game series. So, you know, it's it's all about getting hot at the right time. The Brewers ended the regular season with eight consecutive victories. If they don't win any of those eight, they don't win the division and everything changes. They probably fall into a wild-card mode. And then um, they won the next four games in the postseason. So they, they had a 12-game winning streak. In, you yes, know, they did. In that code. That's, that, it's really hard to do. Really hard to do. They have not had a 12-game winning streak since 1987. 
Timing is everything. The Brewers certainly picked the right time to have everything click. Uh, you, know, you mentioned, again, if, if we go back uh, to the old ways and they're in the American League Central, they're the easy pick for the division. And no offense to Cleveland Indians fans, but as you mentioned, the National League Central uh, is going to be tough both this year and, and for years to come given uh, all the resources those teams have and, and the players you've mentioned. Looking forward with the Brewers, we know they've got this really good group. The pitching actually carried them last year uh, a lot more in the offense. The offense did have some struggles, particularly in the middle of the diamond. We saw them bring in a couple different guys and rotate a couple guys through second and uh, base and shortstop. Keston here is their number one prospect. He's a pure second baseman. The idea is he'll be the answer to at least uh, the, the problems on one side there of the bag at second base. In your discussions with, with Brewers officials and, and scouts outside the organization, was there any doubt in any quarter that Keston Hero was not the number one prospect in this system, especially with Corbin Burns' rise? Yeah, I, I did not get a lot of pushback on that, uh, Kyle. You know, a lot of people say, oh, no, you're off base on that. What, what I do is um, m um, my process is to form a top ten, present it to people in the organization, see what they say about it, and if I get pushed back, then we, I start, you know, reevaluating, and then and then we have an editorial process with the magazine as well, where we'll jostle some people around, and, uh, you know, Baseball America always has final editorial control, but it's always a very friendly, uh, benign process, I should think. We, uh, we don't grab each other by the throat and say, what are you doing? You know, change that number. Um, but it, it's, so it's an, it's an ongoing process, but, um, one, one thing I will say is it, there, there was no absolute question that, that Hera and Burns were the top two guys. You know, and you're talking position player versus pitcher, too. So, you know, I, I know it's trite to say apples and oranges, but it is. Um, but, and, and I think, you know, Burns came up and, and they pitched him in relief last year, and he had a tremendous impact in them uh, going to the postseason and, and then uh, advancing into the postseason. But he's, he's going to be a starting pitcher. Uh, they made it clear that he's not going to be like Josh Hader. They're not going to leave him in the bullpen. He's going to go back. You'd hate to waste a guy with the true four-pitch mix that Corbin has and, and just make him a relief pitcher. Not that. Uh, the bullpen wasn't the best part of their team, and that bullpen has become so important. But they look at him as a, as a, a guy who can be a top one or two starters in the rotation, and they're not easy to find. And you know what? If we look through uh, Brewers history, they have not had the greatest success developing starting pitching from their system. You know, you go back even since the turn of the century, you, you sort of get Ben Sheets and Giovanni Gallardo and they looked like they had a good one going with Jimmy Nelson until he hurt his shoulder, um, but but they you know they're not that easy to find. And teams, I, I talk with uh, David Stearns, the general manager, about this all the time. Teams such as the Brewers, who are going to have limited resources, have to develop their own starting pitching because look at the price of starting pitching on the market. You know they can't afford to pay a hundred million dollar contracts to guys, so they need to develop their own pitching. You know. They really like three of their young guys, uh, Corbin Burns, Freddie Peralta, and Brandon Woodruff. And uh, all three of those guys will get a chance to win a spot in their rotation in the spring. But Keston Hira, and, and I believe this was even alluded to in the cover uh, of the baseball magazine issue on the Brewers, um, best hitter, best-looking hitter since Ryan Braun in the system, and I totally agree with that. Um, 
I, I, you know, when Braun, right away you could see Braun was an advanced college hitter who was going to be a, a, you know, an offensive prodigy. And Castaneda looks like the same kind of guy to me. I don't know if he's going to have Braun's power, but man, he's got everything else. He has a very, very quick stroke, very uncomplicated, not a lot of moving parts. He reminds me a little bit of Paul Molitor and that Paul Walter never went into a slump because his swing never had to be broken down a whole lot. It was just a real quick, late swing. And and here's the same way he'll let the ball get in on him. He doesn't he doesn't panic on that. He waits a long time. He's got a really quick bat. And he just hits everywhere he's ever been. You know, he was he looked really good in spring training last year. Then he went and had a really, really nice season. And then won MVP of the Arizona Fall League. He is a second baseman only. Um, you know, they do like versatility in the, in, in the organization and certainly in the National League. But that's okay because how many second basemen have his type of offensive potential, right? So I, I feel very comfortable with Keston as the number one uh, prospect in the organization, and I, and I think he's generally recognized as their top guy. Yeah, no, there's not a lot of argument. And you mentioned the slumps. At the beginning of last year, he wasn't a little bit of one. Uh, he was in, in high class A Carolina. And I went out and talked to him and just, you know, something where he was pressing a little bit and he adjusted very, very quickly, went on a tear. And, you know, we talk about a lot of times the tools with the hitters, and that is the most important thing. But that ability to self diagnose and adjust is also what separates you know the great hitters from just the good ones and Hira showed that in his first full season he, he showed a lot of those instincts uh, during his time at UC Irvine as well uh, there's very little doubt that he'll hit uh, his arm has been a concern since college uh, he did finally get out and start playing second base with some regularity about June of last year uh, which is kind of the most recent update on on his arm and his ability to make the throws you know, it's a short throw from second base, but even some of those at times, the plays deeper in the hole, they had been a problem at times. Where's that progress at right now? Yeah, we should update um, our listeners with what was going on with here at the time of the draft a couple of years ago. He, he um, had a partially torn UCL, UCL in his um, elbow, and for those who aren't familiar with that, that's the Tommy John ligament. Um, that was diagnosed before his junior year, so... Uh, they made the decision at Cal Irvine for um, Hero to just be a DH that year, um, and they wanted to. He took a what do they call PRP injections, right? Yep. The plasma rich uh, injections. Pla pla platelet rich, injections. yep. Right, platelet rich, right? Thank you. And so uh, he, he did one of those injections. Yes, I, I've seen some. I've seen those things work, and I've seen those things not work. But he went out and, and DH'd and had one of the best college uh, seasons offensively, and the Brewers identified him immediately as the best bat available at the college level, in their opinion. And so, you know, they've never been afraid to think out of the box, and they drafted him knowing full well that um, he might have to have Tommy John surgery and miss his first professional year. You know, the weird thing about the draft, and there's been endless debates about it, is you know, you just you take your chances on medicals. You're not really allowed to do a full physical until they're ready to sign or have signed. And and so, much to the Brewers' delight, and and obviously Hero's too. And when they did the full scans on him uh, upon signing him, that ligament had healed. That PRP had done the trick and it had healed. But they still went very slowly with him let him mostly DH or to start his pro career, and then slowly work him into the field. 
And I heard he was looking good in the field in the Arizona Fall League, making all the throws, uh, looking good. You know, he's going to be an offensive player. He's going to be like Jeff Kent. He's not going to have to be a, a gold glove winning second baseman. He's just going to have to be able to make the plays. And so um, they're confident he'll be able to do that. It looks like uh, he's out of danger with that elbow now. Everything's been fine playing in the field. And so, uh, you know, they took a little gamble on him. It's paid off in a big way. Uh, that decision to just DH that last year at Talleyrand turns out to be genius on everyone's part. And you got to give the Brewers credit for just saying, we're going to draft him anyway. We think he's the best hitter. And, and look how it's turned out. Keston Hura, the clear number one. Corbin Burns, the clear number two. It's fair to say that's the top tier of Brewers prospects. Both are top 100 guys and in all likelihood will remain top 100 guys uh, at the start of 2019. A little bit of a drop-off into the next tier, but the number three prospect is still very interesting, and that was Corey Ray. Ray was the fourth overall pick in 2016. Uh, had had a knee injury that he, he got taken care of after he was drafted. But his first full season at high Class A Carolina, um, it was just not good in any sense. Um, just to be frank, scouts' opinions of him and opinions of those who even weren't scouts, you could see it. Um, was This was not a guy who looked like a future big leaguer. There was no adjustments. It was a swing that left right. a lot of holes open on the plate. Uh, you know, good athlete, great guy, but uh, it, it just was not there. Year two, they, they moved him up to double A, and there was some question about if that was even wise, but... It was a lot better. There were still some strikeouts, but the power-speed combination was there. It was a lot better at bats. And some of it was the knee healing up and kind of, you know, I think anyone who's ever had a fairly major knee surgery will tell you the second year out of it, you're a lot more confident and everything feels a lot better than the first year out of it. Uh, was that the ultimate deciding factor in, in, in Ray's uh, improvement in, in year two in your estimation? Yeah, I think that had a lot to do with it, Kyle. Um, he... Uh... He got into some bad habits uh, after that knee injury. It's not uncommon. You know, you're kind of protecting one leg. And you and um, um, you guys uh, uh, going out and looking at players that year saw the same thing that scouts did, that uh, he just was a mechanical mess at the plate and, and therefore didn't even look like, as you noted, didn't even look like a, a top uh, prospect. But to his credit, he kept working. He got himself regathered. Last year, the MVP in the Southern League. He does have swing and miss in his game, but I almost want to say who doesn't in baseball these days. Um, it's kind of become a swing and miss game. You know, um, I, I wonder if he's not going to be a player kind of like his mentor, Curtis Granderson. Curtis Granderson and him both came out of the same area of Chicago. Uh, Curtis has always been a mentor of uh, – of um, Corey Ray's, and oddly enough, Curtis played for the Brewers last September. They traded for him for the stretch run, and uh, and they, they're kind of two peas in a pod. Um, they're both tremendous people. Uh, Curtis Granderson has power, has speed. You know, uh, later in his career, you know, profiled as an extra outfielder, and so they might be very similar in, in just the kind of players that they are. But everyone feels so much better about Corey. You know, than than they did a year ago, and he feels better about himself. You know, confidence is such a big thing. No matter how good you are, when your confidence is down, you know, you don't do as well. He got his confidence back, and it was a really big year for him. Was, you know, now he's going to go up to Triple A, and um, you know, they, they like their three outfielders they're going to have at that new San Antonio franchise in Triple A this year. They're going to the starting outfield is going to probably be Corey Ray, Troy Stokes Jr., and um, Tyrone Taylor. 
who kind of reestablished himself as a prospect last year. So, you know, they've traded away a lot of outfield depth in the last few years. They, you know, last January they traded Monte Harrison and Lewis Brinson, their top two outfield prospects, uh, in that Yellich trade. But no one's arguing about that right now. Then later they traded Brett Phillips uh, to, for Mike Moustakis. You know, and so they they send it out even more. This winter they traded uh, two uh, extra outfielders who are out of options, uh, Domingo Santana and Keon Boxton. So they continue to move outfielders to other organizations to get pieces that they need, and, and yet they still have, um, you know, a pretty good outfield situation. You know, you got Ryan Braun and left um, Lorenzo Cain and Christian Yelich in right, so you're pretty set in the outfield for a while, you know, and so. That's going to allow him to develop some other outfield prospects. Troy Stokes has been kind of a fast climber. Uh, he, he's, a, he's got kind of that same power-speed uh, combo that Corey Ray has, maybe not as much pop, but uh, they're, they're both, um, they both have a lot of tools. And so the Brewers feel okay about their outfield prospects considering some of the ones they traded away. Absolutely, they have every right to. Uh, you know, beyond Corey Ray, it seems like that's where maybe some things start to, you know, I don't know, I don't want to say get muddled, but uh, at what point did it start to become okay? These guys are maybe a little more interchangeable because, at least from the outside looking, it seemed like those were the top three. Um, take us through the rest of the list. How many of those guys were surefire top ten? How many guys were debatable? What What was your overall process and assessment for you know the the back of this list after Corey Ray? Yeah, I think there. I think they were. Uh, there were some, uh, you know, interchangeable parts there in the second half of the uh, of the uh, top ten. And so, you know, let, let's go ahead and and list those uh, those top ten players. The rest of the top ten. Um, I believe you have the list there ready, but I have mine right here too. So we have we have Bryce Terang, uh, who was their number one pick last year, fourth. Then Zach Brown, a pitcher, uh, fifth. He was the biggest riser in the organization. Mauricio Dubon, an infielder who would have played a lot for the Brewers last year if not for a torn ACL uh, in uh, after one month of AAA. Tristan Lutz, a real slugging outfit. So, that, you know, there's another outfield prospect, Tristan Lutz, who's in our top ten. I was talking about, um, you know, feeling good about their outfield prospects. Then Lucas Ursig, who's been in the top ten for a couple of years, the third baseman, eighth. Joe Gray out of last year's draft, another outfielder. He's got tremendous tools, some swing and miss in his game. And then Jacob Nottingham, a catcher at number 10, a player who a couple of years ago people wondered if he was going to retain prospect status. He kind of scuffled a couple of years ago, but then made tremendous strides both offensively and defensively last year and actually got to play a little bit in the big leagues last year. So they're starting to feel good about him. But there were some interchangeable parts. You know, the fact that we have two players from last year's draft in the top ten, Bryce Terang, a shortstop, and Joe Gray after, shows you that some, you know, they, they did advance some players out, uh, some up to the big leagues and then others um, traded. You know, so we did have to have some replacement guys. But there's a lot of talent in that top ten, don't you think? I mean, I, uh, you look at the tools in particular uh, of, a, of guys like Ursig and Gray, Terang. You know, Terang is a very interesting guy uh, for me because he was, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think uh, 
Baseball America was talking about him a couple of years ago as possibly being a 1-1 guy in the draft last year, right? The, the he was, pick. so Bryce Terang was for a long time considered one of the best uh, prep prospects. And funny enough, my, my previous job before this as the lead baseball writer for the Riverside Press Enterprise, covering Bryce Terang uh, as a freshman and sophomore year for his high school team was a big part of my coverage. So I got to watch a lot of Terang uh, all four years of his high school career. And he was always a very, very gifted hitter, and there's no question when he was a freshman and sophomore, uh, you know, it, it's always hard to say someone at 15 is going to be this, the best player at, at 17 or 18 because there's so much growth that happens for boys that age. Uh, but there's no question that evaluators saw him, saw his bloodlines as the son of a former big leaguer, saw his ability to play up the middle, his athleticism, his bat, and said, yes, this is the package of a potential future number one overall pick. And as you mentioned, his senior year, you go back and look at it, he didn't have a bad year. It just didn't no. rise to the almost impossible expectations people had, and as such, he kind of fell. Yeah, he was. Uh, he was uh, deemed to have a new a phrase that was new for me. I know we've had a lot of new phrases with you know exit velocity and launch angle and all the things that have come into uh, you know out getters, start um, openers, but but. But Terang, uh, I saw a label given him that I had uh, not been that familiar with. Some people said he had, quote-unquote, prospect fatigue. <laughs> the, the general, yeah, the idea is that, you know, certain guys that scouts have been seeing so long that they're just like, yeah, yeah, we know about this guy, and it becomes almost a, uh, you know, it's, it's like a, sometimes it's like relationships, right? The new exciting one gets, gets your juices flowing where the stable, steady one you've been in for a while, after a while you can lose interest. It's the same concept. Yeah, it's kind of, it kind of falls in line with the old saying, uh, familiarity breeds contempt. I mean, I wouldn't say there was you contempt, but but the idea that yeah, yeah you know, they all of a sudden the the newer the newer pop up guys were generating more excitement, whereas Terang was still steady, still productive, still very good right. playing in you know, Division One Southern section, which is you know for my money the best baseball section in the country talent wise, playing in all the big tournaments, had a good year, but again uh, expectations had gotten so crazy, uh, but he fell to the Brewers. They signed him near the deadline. He went out and did just fine for himself at the rookie ball levels. What can Brewers fans expect from Bryce Terang looking ahead? Well, two things uh, came out of the quote-unquote prospect fatigue slippage down the first round that are going to play in the Brewers' favor in having Bryce Terang. One is he made it down to them, you know, and a lot of people, what, what was that pick at, 21 or something? Or I'm trying to think of, uh, trying to remember... Oh yeah, twenty-one. So, so they had no, no indication that he would still be on the board when they uh, picked at twenty-one, and they were very familiar with him. He had been on their area code teams, and their scouts had like managed him on those area code teams, and they knew him very well. And they could not say his name fast enough when the twenty-one pick came up, and he was still on the board. And they paid him like something like four hundred thousand dollars over slot to sign him taking them to the very limits of their budget without, you know, being penalized next year. And so that was the first thing that came out of it. He dropped to them unexpectedly. The second thing that came out of it is Bryce Terang got a pretty big chip on his shoulder, about 20 teams passing on him. And, and I've, you know, people that know him told me that. The Brewers said they've heard him talk about it. He mentioned it when we talked to him. That gave him a pretty big chip on his shoulder that, all of a sudden, people thought 
he wasn't the same prospect that he had been for all those years leading up to the draft. So the combination of having a, a maybe a top 10 pick fall to 21 and then have him also have a chip on his shoulder to show how good he is, that's two things that are going to work greatly in the Brewers' favor, don't you think? No question about it. He's definitely going to be probably the most uh, interesting guys to watch next year when he makes his way out to a low Class A Wisconsin to start. Zach Brown is uh, the top pitcher on this list outside of Corbin Burns. He was a guy that, frankly, was not really on anyone's radar and just had a huge breakout season last year. What kind of pitcher is he, and what, how does he project for the Brewers moving forward? Yeah, his goal is to become the, most, the second most famous Zach Brown in America. Um, <laughs> you know, he, he doesn't have a band, <laughs> but, but he made big shots. Yeah, he was the biggest mover. I don't even know we had him in the top 30 last year. I'll have to go look. But um, he, he just, you know, sometimes things just fall together, but, uh, and he, he's always had the stuff, but uh, he, he began using his curveball a little bit more, and it kind of became his best pitch at times. And he also developed a better feel for his third pitch of changeup. And then he just started attacking more, became more comfortable, got his confidence built up. You know, he almost pitched a no-hitter in one game. Um, and, and, and just had a great, great, great year. And you know what? This, this um, The Brewers deserve credit in this regard for staying with Zach Brown. He did not have a good year at the University of Kentucky uh, before the 2016 draft, and a lot of people came off of him. And the Brewers stayed on him, and, and they signed him in the fifth round. And they they just you know refused to believe that that he wasn't a good prospect, it wasn't a good draft choice. A lot of other people you know gave up on him. They they picked him in the fifth round, and, and then last year all of a sudden he broke out. And, and they look at him now as um, a definite candidate for a major league starting rotation. He's probably going to be in AAA this year. And, and uh, he could make his major league debut as a reliever like Josh Hayden and Corbin Burns did if they find themselves in a position again, you know, in August and September where they're in the race and want to add another arm. So, yeah, no one, no one uh, – did himself more favors in the organization last year than Zach Brown. He got pitcher of the year. Keston Hero was their hitter of the year, and Zach Brown was their pitcher of the year. So they feel really good about him. But, man, it's incredible to soar from not being considered a prospect to number five. We don't see that very often, do we, Kyle? No, no, it's definitely a huge jump. You know, you mentioned some of the arms they've got uh, already up that you can project out being a part of the Brewers' future. Brandon Woodruff, Corbin Burns, Freddie Peralta, Zach Davies, by the way, is still in his mid-20s. Um, yes. Where, where does Zach Brown fit into these guys? Is he, you know, number four behind Burns, Woodruff, Davies maybe? Like, what kind of starter do the Brewers think he can be? I think they think he's, you know, I don't think they consider him a five guy. I think they consider him a little bit of that, but probably middle of the rotation guy. You know, I, I think um, – could, could they have a rotation in a couple of years that has um, Burns, Peralta, Woodruff, and Bounder? Yeah, they could. You know, they could. So, uh, and and they're a lot higher on their pitching prospects than people from the outside world are who wanted last for them to sign Jake Arrieta and our U Darvish and wanted them to trade for an ace. We currently hear you know Madison Bumgarner rumors, but I'll just tell you this: 
the Brewers internally like their pitching a lot better than the outside world does. And considering they were one game away from going to the World Series last year, how can you argue with them? Well, it's interesting you mentioned that. You might remember I was out at opening day, Padres Brewers uh, with you last year, and Chase Anderson oh, went out. Right, yeah. And Chase Anderson went out opening day and, and pitched a gem. They eventually won in extra innings. Um, but one of the things was, you know, in 2017, the Brewers were fifth in the NL and ERA. This was one of the best rotation, best pitching staffs. People were saying, oh, you have to sign all these other guys, when in reality, their staff right. was pretty good. People just weren't talking about it. And I remember talking to Chase uh, after that game, and he was saying, you know, we've got a good staff here. We know we've got a good staff. And then, obviously, uh, throughout this last season, they proved it two years in a row now without a lot of big names. The Brewers' staff has actually been what's carried them. As you mentioned last year, at times, the offense was not doing all that great. It was, it was top-heavy, but the bottom was struggling. The pitching staff really kept it afloat, and it seems like the Brewers – you know, we talked about the Brewers being really, really accurate in identifying their own talent, knowing who to keep and who to trade. At this point, I think right. you have to give the Brewers, you know, front office the benefit of the doubt. When they say these pitchers are better than people think they are, they've proven that to be the case two years in a row at the major league level, which at the end of the day is all that really matters. Right. I mean, you have to properly evaluate your own players first, right, before you worry about other players from the outside. You, you better know how to evaluate your own players. You're just not going to have a very good organization. It starts inside first. And they spend a lot of time evaluating their own players. I know um, previous general manager Doug Melvin, who is now a special assistant to Stearns, he goes out and watches their own players a lot. And then, you know, Doug has a scouting background. He began as a scout. And then he, he comes in and gives them scouting um, information on their own players. And Stearns and Matt Arnold, they get out and watch their own guys. Watch. You better evaluate your own players first before you worry about evaluating others to make trade. And they've been pretty good at that, Kyle, and especially their pitching. And, and you know, one of, the, one of the reasons they haven't, like, traded for a Madison Bumgarner or even a J.P. Real Muto or people like that is – Everybody wants them to put Burns in one of those trades, and they're just not going to do it. They're not going to do it. They have six more years of control of him. You know, and he's only got a few days in the big leagues. And they think he's going to be a top, top half of the rotation starter. Why would you trade somebody like that? You know? It's, um, I mean, if they thought... If you got a player, a pitcher that had several years of control, you might. When you have the keys to getting Kane and Yelich last year, they had five years of control of both. So you can trade a Lewis Brinson and a Monte Harrison for Yelich when you're going to have Yelich for five more years because who's going to take his job? Nobody. You know, so that's, you have to evaluate stuff like that. You have to look at what you're getting, what you're giving up. But, but I, I, I've said this many times, I've written it many times, they like their own pitching a lot more than the outside world does. And, and like I said, you have to give them the benefit of the doubt based on that track record. Tom, just to wrap up here a little bit, um, you know, the back 10, one of the guys who was interesting in here was Lucas Ersig, uh, someone who has big left-handed raw power, uh, shows you some skills at third base, but... Uh, two years in a row now has, has really not hit as much as maybe the, the you know, raw tools suggest he should. Where is he right now and, and, and how the organization views him? Yeah, I mean, 
I, I, they still like him a lot. He's had some extenuating circumstances, Kyle. He got hit in the head last year, early in the season. I mean, being pretty bad. And and I don't think he was the same after that. Um, and and he, he, he did have a strong finish, I, I want to say, the last month or so of the season. But it took him a while to come back from that. But you look at his skill set. I mean, man, he's got a good skill set. He had a home run in spring training two years ago in Goodyear against Cincinnati that they still talk about. It went up on the roof of the um, building beyond right field where they said few balls had ever gone during the game. It was such a long home run that they had a maintenance worker get up on a ladder and go up and retrieve the ball <laughs> and give it back to him. I mean, it was a legendary home run. I think he had two that day. So um, they like Urseg a lot. And, you know, he's still a young guy. Now, I think this might be a big year for him. You know, he does need to fulfill, um, as far as production, what he's capable of doing out on the field. But uh, so, so let's see what he does this year. But let's, just don't forget that he got hit in the head last year, and I think that was a factor. No question about it. One final question, Tom. Someone in the outside the top ten that, in the course of your reporting, someone you think that can really pop in a year or two, who's the sleeper? Um, people, they really like Peyton Henry a lot, a catcher. I think he might end up, I think he's number 11 when the top 30 book comes out. I think he's number 11. Um, they like him a lot as far as on and off the field, his leadership and then what he does. Uh, so keep him in mind. And then another fast climber, another guy who climbed almost as far as Zach down did is Braden Webb, a right-hander Braden Webb. And they think he started to put it together last year a lot. So let's just uh, we'll, we'll we'll give a pitcher and a position player, a right-hander Braden Webb and catcher Peyton Henry. Let's keep an eye on those two guys. Beautiful, Tom. Thank you so much as always for all your uh, diligent reporting. We appreciate it, and uh, thanks for joining us on the podcast. My pleasure, Kyle. Thanks so much. All right, everyone. Well, thank you for tuning in to the Milwaukee Brewers Prospects Podcast for Tom Hodricourt. I'm Kyle Glazer. Thanks for listening. <laughs>